a lot of people here. Guess you waited this long to come to a poetry reading. You saved my poetry reading. Thank you. <laughs> I hope I will not um, disappoint. Thank you very much, Karen, um, for that really lovely and extensive um, introduction. Sometimes when I'm being introduced, I kind of lapse into a daydream and think, who is that person <laughs> he's talking about? Um, and then I wake up and I have to come read. Um, so. It's an absolutely beautiful campus. I was walking around a little bit. And of course, too, oh, sorry, polar bears, but it's so wonderfully warm. Um, it's just beautiful out. So thank you. Thank you for the invitation, and thank you for coming. Um, I'm going to read uh, from my last two books, Toxic Flora, and then also Brain Fever. I had, oops, I need to start my um, little clock here. I like to try taking things from all different sources. And usually, my way in, almost like a portal, oops, almost like a portal, is to find the language or words that capture me, and then I'll move into that. Um, I was not one of these super smart math and science Asian American students. In fact, I was terrible at all of that. I was sort of, you know, artsy, hippie type person. Um, so that for me, as an adult, reading science uh, was very exotic. It's an exotic language for me the way someone studying Japanese culture, they might find uh, that exotic for them. Uh, science is totally um, alien, really. So this was my way into science. It was through the language itself. And I just became very swept up by both the language and then also the, um, the kind of stories that came out. Um, I notice that, Karen, you've written on a lot on Darwin. So I'm going to start with On Deceit as Survival. Um, little step back. So uh, many poem, many, most of the poems in Toxic Flora were written after reading articles from the science section in the New York Times. So I would read the article, and then I would play around with some rough drafts and try and figure out what the heck my connection was to the material itself. Otherwise, you might as well just read the article. That's going to be far more interesting than anything I have to write about science. Um, so it had to connect to me. And in this, in this poem, it was deceit. On deceit as survival. Darwin could not believe an insect would visit a blossom that had no reward and insisted that the green-winged orchid must withhold its nectar deep inside. But he was deceived as well, since this orchid does not offer nectar in its own Darwinian desire to attract then rid itself 
of the useful bee. Still other orchids smell like feces or carrion for the sort that prefers to lay eggs in such environs. Yet another orchid species resembles a female bumblebee ending in frustrated trysts or appears to be two fractious males, which also attracts, no surprise, a third bee curious enough to join the fray. What to make of highly evolved beauty bent on deception as survival, liposuction, rejuvenated clitoris, plumped lips. I plead with daughters to forget about the enhanced buttocks and rely on soap as fragrance. But how can a mother instruct on deceit when girls so readily flaunt thigh and thong and when parking lots are replete with broken fences and the preternatural buzz of the car alarm? You're all so serious. I'm going to have to really work on you. Okay. <clears throat> this has a title uh, from a golden oldie song, Just Walk Away, Renee. The mite harvestman, a daddy long legs, found in 400 million year old fossils, wandered between several continents without so much as a swim. A conundrum, if it weren't for plate tectonics a notion only realized in 1911 when a scientist matched up fossils on either side of the Atlantic. I think about this discovery and try to tease out a simile, but really it's better just to leave the first land animals alone, the shifting and colliding and breaking apart alone, the drifting, the sadness that marks the opening of a quest only to discover estrangement. We're still in the insect section, okay. Yellow jackets protect through venom and candor. While timing their own dinners to mother's tray, father's tongs, or baby's saucer-sized cheeks, they can sting any intruder repeatedly unlike the honeybee's suicidal sortie. I like that. I like X, who calls people out at brunch through simple narration. Your mouth never stops moving. Or, you eat off other plates as if they're your own. Or, you check your Blackberry when no one is talking about you. Or, you laugh whenever you insult someone. A startling attribute I wish I could emulate if only my sting possessed such integrity. So um, <clears throat> when I was putting together Toxic Flora, I had several very long uh, zuihitsu, and in this case they looked like uh, collages. They looked um, they look like long prose sections. Um, and my editor had loved those in previous collections, so I was, felt very confident 
gave it to her. She did what she usually does. She gave me the manuscript right back to work on harder. Um, she's a toughie. And um, she suggested that I take out the Zuihitsu, um, which really kind of upset me. Um, but she said, why don't you choose one of them and just take sections, just some paragraphs here and there and kind of flip them through uh, the whole uh, manuscript. She felt that the shorter poems, these like little lyric poems that I've just read, she felt that they were kind of weighed down by these longer pieces. So um, I looked at the various zuihitsu I had uh, and I chose the one on sexual cannibalism. <laughs> Wouldn't you? So here are little bits from that zuihitsu that I saved. Nowadays when friends read about Darwin and something like sexual cannibalism, they immediately expect a poem. <laughs> then there's my own jealousy of the material itself that someone will get to it first. Whatever the pressure, that the female mantis devours the head of the still mating male and then moves on to the rest of his body is a shocking bit of information. Because I am past childbearing years, because I have daughters, or because it just seems vulgar to eat in bed. <laughs> Thank you. Here's another short bit that I saved. Was the coitable cannibalism shocking because I'd thought it only occurred in captivity? Nevertheless, as my father-in-law used to say, The photographer commented, it kind of got boring. Then she reached around, grabbed him around the neck, and bit his face off. <laughs> Science times, so great. Um, wonderful material. Awareness. Among the burrowing owls, scraps of carpet and tinfoil tucked into the humid straw, the horde of cow dung is especially prized as it attracts dung beetles. The owls watch for hours, revealing a tool of attraction of which those clever creatures may not be aware. What then is awareness? connecting shit to consequence, the flicker that links, say, chlorine to climax, or who consumed whom at faculty picnics. I'll read a longer piece um, that actually is not based on, uh, not completely based on the science time. So um, it's called Demeter's Cuttings. And Demeter, of course, is the goddess, uh, the Greek goddess of harvest and fertility. And you may 
or may not need to be reminded that um, her daughter Persephone was kidnapped by the king of hell, Hades, and she wanted to um, obviously rescue her daughter. Um, the deal that was struck was that she could have her daughter uh, um, once a year, and during that time, that, that became summer, summer and spring. Demeter's cuttings. <clears throat> My own mother taught me suspicion to question a man's gifts, whether trifles or truffles. She also taught me the names of trees and how to rub off the dried sheaths of silver dollar stalks, toss the seeds back over the bed. She didn't teach me much else, and truthfully, I like nature not to tend but visit, to watch it take care of itself. Still, a fistful of snapdragons, a flock of yellow dragonflies, a cluster of cicada nymphs, this is what I wish to entice my daughter back to, what I love to what I love. While below, the subway quakes the whole building. Once she called to tell me, mother, don't make me choose. A young man had taken her into the subway to his parents' home for dinner, and by curfew she called to say there were no cabs in sight. I said, but you're too young to stay with him. And I imagined him standing over her as she covered the receiver, saying, my mother won't let me stay. Where was the father? teaching his new wife's son to piss in a pot? What I've learned about men is that they bludgeon to make a point that he will not shut up until his woman weeps and folds in on herself, blames herself for his empty hands. Then he can dismiss her or hold her as if rescuing her from himself. This is what I learn daily to walk away from. Shut up. You're wrong. Who cares? And now, in my own apartment, I wait past her curfew to doze or leaf through people, self, us. Listen to restaurant crowds dispersing, the drunks heaving below my window. Wait up to hear a car door. I know that first boy takes a turbulent daughter to keep her in the dark, but still I wait for keys at the door. Was she so bored in these rooms cluttered with scarves and cosmetics, a few African violets? And isn't that all right, to be a child and be bored? My own childhood was a doll that could do nothing but close her eyes, games with nothing but dice and men, a tape recorder to record what? that boredom. Then there were records of myths and Peter Pan, the marsh across the street, cattails, jack in the pulpits, and trees so high you couldn't climb them, or if you did, the jays would peck your head to protect their squawky nests. Then there was the odd heron, then there was her father. Before she met this young man, I asked, do you miss me when we're apart? And she answered, 
I miss myself, mommy. These days, she claims, I'll do what I want. In spite of the blue porcelain cups, the kitty cat clock hung on the wall, its tail ticking, there comes a point where the mother must risk losing her daughter by telling her, no, you must leave him tonight. My own sisters tell me she'll come home, and when she does, the morning glory vine on the construction fencing across the street will open its pink lyric. Then we'll toast bread and perk coffee and arrange the asphodel on the yellow table. Or will she regard the welt on her arm as an exotic flower from that other world? I cannot say. Sedna. Come to find out, Sedna is the Inuit woman whose father cast her from their kayak, thus transforming her into the spirit of the sea, but also the name of 2003 VB12, a planet or something beyond Pluto. It is the first body to be discovered in the Oort cloud, a hypothetical region of icy objects that become comets. But questions remain. How can a region be hypothetical? How can a scientist not know what a planet is? How could a father throw his daughter from a kayak even if she did write poetry that hurt his feelings? I am not sorry. He always said, art comes first. But that is a murky region for fathers and daughters. What comes first? And what my daughters wish to know is, did she drown for his sake or to learn how depths betray? Um, I thought I was finished with science after Toxic Flora um, was published. But when you tell yourself you're finished with something, sometimes you stop writing <laughs> because it's not finished with you. So um, I gave myself assignments, uh, just to keep the engine going, um, and I went back to the New York Times, but this time I went to only articles or almost exclusively articles on neuroscience, which I knew nothing about then, and I still don't know anything about. Um, but I decided to take one article and write just a bunch of poems. And I gave myself little assignments, uh, little formal assignments. Repeat words, um, take one word like the word toast and see how far I could go. Um, so I'm going to read um, some poems from Brain Fever. And this is from, let's see, a dream sequence um, um, that was uh, triggered by an article on dream theory or dreams in the brain. Oops. 
The Dream of a Little Occupied Japan Doll. It's my little occupied Japan doll. <clears throat> Among the hundred porcelain figurines, the first one, with slanted eyes, fat cheeks, Q, though that's Chinese, and Chinese bonnet, is my favorite. Among all those in pajamas or gowns, or the two in kimono, the first is my favorite. Of those with rickshaw, tambourine, or parasol and fan, I keep on my desk the first one, though she or he is not doing a darn thing. Here in sleep, rivalry is reserved. And as dreams tune the mind for conscious awareness, perhaps his favoritism suggests I've quit hoarding and now collect myself. The dream of knife, fork, and spoon. <clears throat> I can't recall where to set the knife and spoon. I can't recall which side to place the napkin or which bread plate belongs to me or how to engage in benign chatter. I can't recall when more than one fork, which to use first, or what to make of a bowl of water. I can't see the place cards or recall any names. The humiliation is impressive, the scorn. No matter how much my brain revises the dinner to see if the host was a family member, I can't recall which dish ran away with which spoon. <clears throat> One problem with writing um, using outside source material is that it took me much longer to revise my poems than usual because I really held on to the really interesting stuff and I needed to trim out more and more. <laughs> and I wouldn't until my friends would tell me, you've got to take that stuff out. It doesn't belong, so I have good friends. Otherwise, each of, each of these poems are, well, they wouldn't be in the book, but um, they'd be twice as long. <clears throat> the Dream of a Raindrop. Whether tear or rain, Neither appear round on search engine images, even though scientifically speaking, the latter begins as a liquid globe, aggregates of water molecules that have condensed around specks of dust or salt until gravity has its way and circle turns into chandelier crystal, drizzle, downpour, tempest. Come inside, Kimmy before you catch your death. This from the, um, on, um, the brain and the unconscious. And here I have uh, in some of these um, uh, epigraphs. Um, I should say here, though, with Toxic Flora, I was reading some poems at a poetry reading before the book came out, and 
talking about the Science Times and how much I love those articles, blah, 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 just the way I have here. And a young man came up to me after the reading and said that he was one of the editors at the Science Times. And when the book comes out, would I like to um, go to one of the staff meetings and meet the writers? And I thought, oh, right? I mean, they're like world-class science writers. I just couldn't believe, um, I couldn't believe the invitation. So I took him up on the offer. When the book came out, I notified him. And as I stepped up the subway stairs on, um, I guess it's 40th Street, to go to the science, uh, to go to the New York Times building, I completely broke out in a cold sweat. I thought, "What are you doing? You just stole all these people's material, and you did. You had your way with the material, and now you're going to read poems to them." <laughs> um, but shameless person that I am, I walked right into the staff meeting Tuesdays, Tuesday afternoons, and um, I introduced myself, I read a few poems, and I said that um, in Toxic, this is for Toxic Flora, I said, you know, in every poem, uh, um, it, it, with every article, I note in the back which article I've used. So I was really happy when the book was passed around that they all were looking in the back <laughs> to see if I used their work. So that made me feel better. And no one threw any staplers or anything at me. Um, in this case, I use a lot of material um, by the writer Benedict Carey. <clears throat> and again, um, I like to use, uh, and this comes from Japanese aesthetics, I like to use um, uh, words that have multiple meanings. So vanity, right? It's a dresser, but it's also to be vain, right? Brooch, it's a piece of jewelry or to brooch a topic, right, spelled differently. Loafers, loafing, trench, trench coat, or to be in a trench. <clears throat> Profile, alarm, forecast, fidelity, right, all those words, you can really work them hard, and they <clears throat> draw you into a, a kind of different space, which poetry should do. <clears throat> Excuse me. Alarm. Quote, before doctors learn how it is that the brain's lights turn on, they may have to know a lot more about what's happening when the lights are off. Benedict Carey. In her dark, she surveys empty. The vanity from the in-law's Bronx apartment. The brooch from a lover. Loafers by a coat tree, trench coat, the husband's profile, an alarm for news and forecast. Here she appraises fidelity before the light violates. Oh, another Demeter poem. Demeter? Demeter? <coughs> Demeter? Demeter. Demeter. Keep going back and forth. So. Porch light, barley, poppy, then a pomegranate, now front porch light. There's no longer sensation without the one, once cradled in tissue, swaddled in blood, feeling her hiccup inside the inside. Turn the pages of a calendar to retrieve one's daughter from his underground vow. 
I must unlock the door, leave it ajar, since by degrees the son-in-law rations my weather. I'll read um, the spaghetti poem that uh, Karen referred to. A bowl of spaghetti. <clears throat> Excuse me. To find a connectome or the mental makeup of a person, researchers experimented with the neurons of a worm, then upgraded to mouse, hoping to unravel the millions of miles of wires in the human brain that they liken to untangling a bowl of spaghetti, of which I have an old photo, Ray in her high chair, intently picking out each strand to mash in her mouth. Was she too? Was that sailor dress from mother? Did I cook that sauce from scratch? If so, there was a carrot in the pot, as mother instructed, and I'll never forget, no matter which strand determines ardor as a daughter's verdict. Excuse me. Cherry stems. I'm not too happy that fruit flies have brains, since I swat them whenever I see them or think I see them. I know about their brains because I met a scientist who tinkers with their learning circuitry, the actual mechanics of how a memory trace is laid down in a nerve cell or neuron. All this proxy, dissecting the behavior of an insect to figure out how the brain works for something like typing at which my mother was a pro and me fairly miserable because of some disorder which it seems my daughter has inherited since she also exhibits left-right confusion. However, she can twist a cherry stem into a bow with her tongue, an ability no doubt from an ancestral brain but which also reveals something about a summer in Florence. In other words, too much information regarding memory trace. <laughs> That's usually my last one. Go back and end with, um, end with this one from um, from Toxic Flora. Cope's rule. According to Edward Drinker Cope, 19th century paleontologist, fossil records show lineages become larger over millennia, indicating that bigger is more successful. Though later scientists offered further support for Cope's rule, 
from mammals to corals. Paleontologists in the last century challenged such evidence. Gould, in particular, was dismissive of such a psychological artifact. Current, more rigorous studies suggest the results are plain to see. Being big provides a big advantage. And yet, the study continues, why isn't Cope's rule more of a rule? Laws of physics reveal that insects cannot grow to the size of Tyrannosaurus rex because their exoskeleton cannot support heavy loads of body mass. Furthermore, a small rat is probably better adapted to a certain niche. There is also the issue of surviving mass extinction, though not everything can get small enough quick enough. I am small already, so that isn't a personal concern. Still, each consecutive husband has gotten larger, though I'm not sure why or what that reveals, except it's easier for Harold to reach for stuff on the top shelf <laughs> rather than me, rather than watch me at 50, oh, this was a while ago, at 50, climb on the kitchen counter, though last weekend he bought for us both a stepladder, ruling out vulgar advantage. Thank you. <laughs>